My name is James Hill and welcome to MISC, a podcast series of my interesting snappy chats with successful people about the themes, ideas and experiences that challenge them. Dr. Vanessa Perotta is a wildlife scientist, science communicator and marine mammal expert, pioneering the use of cutting-edge technology to aid whale conservation. In non-science speak, she's collecting whale snot using drones. I speak to Vanessa about her PhD project, ocean conservation, dolphin spies, and what on earth she's doing with all that whale snot. Vanessa, thanks so much for taking the time to to speak with me. I think it's a pretty timely conversation to be having, what with us being halfway through the annual whale migration that we can see from the New South Wales coastline. Um, how, How have you been? Very good, thank you. It's been an exciting time. It's always my favorite time of year where we have a lot of migratory animals visit our Sydney coastline and it's such a time where we we often as humans also migrate to the coastline to see these animals undertake one of the world's longest migrations of of any mammal and that is the humpback whale migration. Yeah, it's such a it's such a spectacle. But before we jump into the the great blue sea, have you always been fascinated by the ocean, where where did your interest in in the ocean and marine predators, whales and sharks, begin? Well, the short answer to that is yes. Always interested in the ocean. Now, for those who don't know, and I've kind of sound like a big little nerd when I talk about this in my TEDx talk, but I actually grew up on a farm outside of Canberra, so I was three hours away from the closest beach. And my year two teacher always recalls me drawing pictures of dolphins and whales. So it's always been there. It's just, I think, this fascination I had with these creatures that were always in my books and I was looking at them. And then now to grow up and actually be close to them is something that just blew my mind. And it's it's simply, it's arisen out of passion. It's something that grew from a kid on a farm that enabled me to then explore my passion into a PhD and now into a scientific career. That sounds it sounds so interesting. I think there is such a, um, a fascination with with those marine creatures, like whales, like sharks, like we could speak about so many of them. But why why do you think what whales? Why are whales so important? Great question. Well, for the average listener, people just think, oh, people, you know, whales are beautiful. They look like this. They're big. We all like them. Yeah. So they might be the size of a school bus. But did you know that? whales do actually play important ecological roles in the environment in the marine ocean. So the ocean is obviously covers more than 70% of the of the earth's surface. And as part of that, these whales play important roles by feeding in one area. So these animals will feed on tons of krill. I'm talking about the humpback whale in particular. And then they'll poo in another area. So what they're doing is they're moving a huge mass of nutrients from one part of the ocean and then pooing in another part of the ocean and transferring these nutrients around. So it's called the whale pump or the iron pump. And that is something that is super important. As well as that, they also, because they breathe the same air that we breathe and they swim in the same water we swim in, they're kind of like the canary in the coal mine because they can provide a lot of information about our ocean that we can gather from them. And that's something that I've worked on in my PhD. That sounds fascinating. And it really puts my worm farm that I've just bought to shame because the worms do the same thing, but on a <laughs> micro scale. But just for before we get onto your PhD um, topic, I wonder if you can just speak a little bit about the, the distances that some of these marine mammals travel. Oh, it is absolutely epic. So to give you an idea, one in one year, this was a very unique 
it was a unique time. I was working off Sydney and then I had the opportunity to go to Harvey Bay. So Sydney is a migratory corridor for these animals. So each year they do one of three things. This is for the humpback whale on the east coast of Australia. They're breeding, feeding or migrating. And so I'll explain a little bit. So when they're migrating, they're moving from a breeding area to a feeding area or going from a feeding area to a breeding area, vice versa. And so I then went up north to the breeding area, which is in the Great Barrier Reef. And so I had some time in Harvey Bay, also in the Coral Sea, and I saw the whales there as well. And then I had the opportunity to then, during that summer, travel down to Antarctica on a ship, down to a very, very cool location, literally. <laughs> and so I was able to see these whales that I had seen off Sydney in the Great Barrier Reef and then over in Antarctica to, to understand the mass migratory, the, the, the huge distances that these animals take is very, very overwhelming because it just really puts into a, a snapshot of these animals are moving from extreme environments all within one year and they do it for the rest of their lives. So this is mm. over 80 years potentially. It, it's just amazing. And how they navigate, well, we don't exactly know exactly how they do this, but most of the time these animals are swimming in water where there's no no topography. I can't even speak, no topography mm-hmm. or any features underneath that they can help navigate. So it's it's an amazing thing. Yeah, it's a completely awe-inspiring when, when you think about it. So your your PhD project, it involved capturing whale snot. I think you may need to um, explain that a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. So whale snot, I'm sure your viewers or your, your listeners rather have already got in their mind, okay, I know what snot is and I know what a whale is. Well, The best way to put this is that whales, as I said before, are mammals like you and I. So they have similar systems in order to breathe, so they must remember to breathe. So they've got two nostrils, or some of them have one. So the humpback whale specifically has two nostrils that have migrated to the top of their head, and this is like the inbuilt snorkel. So what what these animals will do is they'll take a breath and then they'll swim underwater and then they need to come up to take a breath again. Whale snot is collecting that bacteria that lives in their lungs. And so it's actually known as whale lung microbiome or microbiota or whale blow. But it's essentially you can you can pick your nose, put it get that snot and put it in a tissue and sample it, although I don't advise doing it because it's yeah. we're in a COVID situation here, so we must make sure that our hygiene is up to standards. Um, so but essentially it's it's taking that bacteria and learning about what kind of bacteria is living in their lungs. And how do you go about capturing that? Well, what's been really great is that the research that we've been able to do has been at the cutting edge of technology. So essentially we've taken modern design and, and technology tools to help create innovative and custom-developed waterproof drones so i'm talking a drone a quadcopter four propellers we designed and built our own so i I collaborated with alistair smith from heli guy scientific here in in australia so he's an aerial cinematographer and an engineer so essentially i'm the science side he's also sciences which is great and he's the real technology buff and guru and we collaborated and through innovation and collaboration we were able to develop our own drones and this is cool and the reason we built our own drones was because well not many of the -the off-the-shelf products are actually waterproof and snot proof (laughs) so we had to (laughs) essentially create this technology to put a petri dish on top of the drone which had a little opening and shutting device so we could minimize the amount of bacteria 
and uh, con contaminants that would get into our samples. So essentially what we do is we'd put a Petri dish on the drone, we'd fly the drone from the back of a boat out to a whale's position, wait for it to take a breath and deliberately fly the drone through the whale's snot by collecting the sample and then coming back to the vessel where we'll then store the sample and analyse it a little later. And this is all in the name of learning more about whale health and collecting information from free swimming whales without having to kill them or wait for them to strand on a beach. Yeah, I, I don't suppose there was too much of an argument about who was going to catch the drone when it got back to the um, <laughs> boat after after like deliberately flying it through um, whale snot. So I take it you specifically target humpback whales at the moment? Yes, humpback whales were the preferred species to target. Now, some people might go, well, we know a lot about humpback whales. Why them? Well, I'll tell you because simply humpback whales provide a great model species for this research. So at the start of this work, we didn't know that we could do this. We didn't know that we could collect bacteria from their lungs reliably. We thought some people would just think it was just water, but it's not, and that's exciting. Um, other things were we also used to just think using a pole was the best method, but this would involve close boat approaches. But really the way in which we're doing this is totally revolutionising the way we can learn more about them for the better. And so the, the use of drones has essentially enabled us to change change the way in which we do this, which is a, a complete positive. What do some of the results show and what kind of information can you capture from, from whales not? What can it tell us? Well, the results at a molecular level, so at a genetic level, can show us a number. So we do next generation sequencing, which I'm just going to break this down. So this is not too much science here. But essentially, we get our sample, we duplicate the sample. So we make a lot of the sample by using preliminaries chain reaction or PCR. So your listeners who watch CSI will probably see that, you know, some of the guys, they get a droplet of blood and then we've got to make more of it. And that's essentially what we do with it. <laughs> and then we put it into a big machine, which looks at using next generation sequencing. It's essentially, it breaks down the types of bacteria at an operational taxonomic unit level. So that's essentially going, this is a type of bacteria you have in your samples. And this is at, this is at, at a very detailed level. So from that, we've actually found that they're carrying a lot of mammalian bacteria, which, surprise, surprise, we thought they're mammals, so they are mammals. So we're likely to see that. They also carry bacteria that, well, this is baseline bacteria, so what we're characterising is what we, we didn't know existed in their lungs. So we're collecting information to sort of say, okay, this is what we found in this population in this year. And then from that, we found bacteria that can be associated with pneumonia. So that's an interesting finding. We found some whales carried similar bacteria. We then compared our bacteria with whale snot from other parts of the world and found there was an overlap or similarities. But what we were also able to do was, you know, use this as a bit of a, a, that, a standard for, okay, this is what we find in free swimming whales and this is what we could compare to whales that strand and then look at their health and look at how similar or, or dissimilar they are. Thinking about those whales hanging out in the chilly waters of Antarctica, no wonder some of them catch pneumonia. With these sort of discoveries, is there anything we can learn about their resilience to these type of lung infections? But it is a little bit too early to tell just because all we're simply doing is we've used this method to 
describe what's in their lungs and it, trying to infer what this could mean is a little tricky at this stage. It would require more sampling. But, I mean, it's definitely, you know, we're essentially sampling the world's smallest organisms from one of the largest on Earth. So to yeah. look at it at that level is fascinating just as it is. But to then go, okay, what's the next steps in this? And the advances in science will only enable us to ask more questions. And as a result of this work, we've also been able to collect viruses, and that's a world first using a drone to collect viruses from a whale. So that's super cool. And to give you an idea of the viruses, we really had to make sure that once we collected them, we stored them appropriately so that their genetic information wouldn't break down. Whereas we've got COVID uh, circulating the world and that virus seems to be completely a, a game changer in a way because this virus can live without a host on surfaces for a period of time. And that is really what get, blows my mind because going from a, a virus that's so potentially sensitive in terms of degradation to then having a virus that can stick around on a surface for a period of time, it's just as a scientist going from the lab to now every day, it just changes the way in which you think about things. God, yeah, I imagine. But but the project itself is such an inspiring combination of like science and technology working together. How important as a scientist do do you feel it is to fund this sort of work? Well, look, it's not groundbreaking in terms of it's going to save the world, but what it is doing, it's adding a piece of the puzzle to our knowledge. It's getting collaborative work together to learn more about our ocean giants, which do play an important ecological role for our marine environment, which is important for us to understand. Also, we do have in Australia a national and international obligation to protect our species, such as the humpback whale, which is a migratory animal. So it is doing, it is fulfilling the conservation box. But also what's come out of this is surprising because I've done so much science communication talking about this talking about innovation and technology to a wide variety of demographics. So it really has provided an opportunity for people to connect and learn with the ocean, which is super important because if it does take me talking about whale snot to an average person who doesn't really connect with the ocean and for them to then think about that, that is very powerful. And I think that goes beyond my obligations as a scientist to share research knowledge and communicate with people but really connect with people on a different level and that's what we're doing right now whether it is you listening somewhere in your car or on a long trip somewhere this is all about connecting people with the ocean and getting people to think about the ocean with that in mind and and with a little bit more insight onto what your project involves out there with the with the whales in the ocean if 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 we were going to watch the whales this weekend, what other interesting whale facts should we keep in mind whilst we're doing that? Well, whales can communicate to each other over long distances by using sound. So it's particularly the males that will talk to each other and sing rather. Um, but also another way they can communicate to each other is by jumping up and down out of the water, doing a typical that big breach where they propel their bodies out of the water and splash down onto the surface. That's really cool to see. You might also see whales tail slapping and also bringing their pectoral flipper or their arm up and then slapping that on the surface of the water. It's all communication and it's really great to see. Also that big breath, that blow that you see, that's whale snot. And as you've now listened, you now know a little bit about whale snot. (laughs) I didn't actually think that the whales breaching and slapping their their tails on the water was them communicating with each other. That's, That's quite fascinating to me. 
Absolutely, because here's another cool fact. Sound travels around six times faster in water than it does in air. So that's important and um, that's good to know because we should think about the ocean acoustically as well. Well, yeah, and I'm sure we'll get onto a question on on the acoustics in in the ocean later on. But before we do, a a, a slight change in um, topic. I'd read somewhere, I think, that the annual whale migration may in some in some ways be be responsible for the increase in shark numbers or activity around around the coast of of new south wales in that in that migratory corridor as well is is there any truth in that that is an interesting point now i'm going to break this down because there's a few things happening with this statement and i it, which has been reported in the news so first of all we do have the whale migration that's one thing But what we also do have is a natural overlap of sharks and whales in the same environment. That's another thing. Okay, so we've got these two Mm. points. The the absolute increase in, well, the the documentation of shark attacks in a relatively small period of time is unusual. And I'm talking about in Australia. That is unusual. So people are naturally trying to work out, well, what is it? What's going on? So what we need to be aware of is that statistically encounters with sharks are quite low. People are swimming in the ocean every single day and to, to count the number of attacks in, in Australia recently on our hands essentially is quite low. It is obviously a traumatic experience and event and I'd never want to be have that in, experience and of this I do completely think about the families that have lost loved ones and these incidences. So I just wanted to point that out because as a scientist, I'm very respectful of that. But the 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 idea that sharks are waiting for whales to hang out and wait for them to die and then feed on them is just simply not always happening. What we've got going mm-hmm. from, from the whale perspective, whales will naturally die. Uh, unfortunately, they will become an interacting with human activities, which also may result in their death. They can live over 50 to 80 years of age, the humpback whale, and sometimes during the migration we see some whales' bodies floating and that will naturally attract sharks because they stink, they're bloody, there's a lot of oils there and the sharks will, through their natural ecological processes, come and eat the whales and do their bit. So that's important. We need them to break it down. Um, the increase in sharks, there's, there's been a lot of research for to suggest that we have warming oceans, so the East Australian current is strengthening. That itself might bring cool nutrient upwellings, which may attract white sharks into the area. There's also recent research to suggest that the warming of the oceans, because climate change is happening, may allow bull sharks to stay further south for a, a few more months than they, what they would usually do. And this is because, well, we, yeah. if you have warmer waters down south, well, it's almost like Queensland. So there's there's a whole number of things, and I think by me pointing out a few of these scientific evidence and, and also points here can really help the listener understand just how maybe the media is going, oh, maybe because it's, it's definitely whales, we've definitely got more sharks. So it's kind of there's no silver bullet in terms of answering that. Yeah, and it sounds it sounds to me from from what you said, it's uh, the, the sharks being opportunistic um, should, should an easy meal present itself rather than anything else. Yes, absolutely. And remember... I'm talking about the humpback whales and not people. <laughs> That's right. And remember, sharks do occur in the ocean. They do. We seem yeah. to forget that in Australia. And it is, there are, in terms of minimising interactions, you know, New South Wales and Queensland have points in place to help minimise interactions. So, for example, swimming at a well-patrolled beach, don't swim at dawn and dusk. However, having said that, 
incidences can occur at any time of the day, but just swimming with a buddy and those kind of things, but entering at the ocean at your own risk. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you can tell from my accent, I'm a, I'm an Englishman, so I have a slight fear of um, fear of sharks in Australia. But I have read that there are something like 350 species of sharks in the world, and only about three of those species are typically involved in any sort of human interaction or, or attack on a human. So with that in mind, do sharks get a bad rap? Sharks definitely get a bad rap. So this is the thing, and I think things like movies like Jaws have completely ruined it for sharks. Because the average person, you've got scientists who are there kind of saying, you know, we know that sharks don't always, are not intentionally doing this. Then you've got the average Joe Blow who doesn't really have any information because they're not scientists, so we don't expect them to, but have this instilled fear because of movies like Jaws, which is completely ridiculous. And I'm unfortunately, there are so many sharks killed every day. It's, it's horrific. Mm. And we need sharks in the environment to play important roles. It's fun that you say that because I was going to um, quote a National Geographic study that found more than 100 million sharks are killed each year. Mm. Does their often unfair, fearsome reputation make it more difficult to gain momentum with conservation activity for sharks over, for example, the more perceived gentle giants that are whales? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So whales, this is the thing, whales don't, Whales are this charismatic animal that everyone loves. But whales do kill people. That's the other thing, especially when people are trying to disentangle whales. There's been experts, unfortunately, killed by whales. They're large. They've got over 80,000 kilograms in some case of body movement. I mean, there was people swimming with the southern right whale mum and baby on the weekend off Sydney. That whale could easily kill one of those people with one swipe of her tail. But then we've got sharks, which have you know, big teeth and this and what about them? They're the ones that that they would probably be more seen as a risk compared to a big southern right whale. So it's all about getting the facts, talking about it, and as your listeners are obviously educated, so they're learning through through us right now, it's all about understanding and and the more you know, the more you can protect and the, the more you understand, the better you can help go about spreading the good messages and messages that need to be put in place and that's why, I'm strongly in place here and in society to try and do my best to be a voice for these animals, to have that balance between science but also making the science accessible to the general public, which is important. Uh, Obviously, another element of your study is, is the human impact on the marine environment. What would you say are our our greatest as humans negative impacts on the ocean? Oh, unfortunately, there's a number of them. <laughs> I wish I could say, oh, yeah, there's not many, but there is a lot. And this is a great little, I'll, I'll make it very concise. We as humans have a number of anthropogenic impacts in the ocean or human-induced impacts. So one of them is overfishing. So we're literally taking from the ocean and stripping food. So krill, Antarctic krill, we, you might see krill tablets, That's whale food. And as climate change increases, we're losing sea ice, which means we're losing krill habitat, which means whales are losing their food. In addition to that, us as humans are stripping krill from the ocean. That's one thing. Uh, Another thing is acoustics, so sound in the ocean. These whales that I work on rely on sound to talk to each other. But because there's more ships in the area, underwater construction, you name it, the ocean is becoming loud and it's hard for these animals to talk to each other. Another thing is pollution. 
as well as acoustic pollution, sorry, physical pollution, micro and macro particles, people throwing things down the drain at home and it's going to come out to the ocean. Balloons. Oh, my gosh, don't get me started on balloons. But mm-hmm. I work as a naturalist of Sydney and the amount of happy 21st and happy 60th balloons I see out on the ocean is terrible. And, and entanglement in fishing gear, that's another thing that kills animals. So we've got shark nets in the ocean. Did you know that shark nets don't just kill sharks? but they're actively killing mm. other non-targeted species and bycatch is terrible. And another thing is ship strike. Ship strike with whales and large megafauna like whale sharks and basking sharks, they will kill animals. So not intentionally because it's hard for a big, massive ship to sometimes see a school bus-sized whale from below. <laughs> so there are a number yeah. of things us as humans need to think about. And I know I sound very depressing right now, but it's really important that us as humans be aware of these things. Yeah, and I think you're right when when you said depressing because I often get that deflated feeling when experts like you list just how damaging some of our um, impacts on not not just the ocean but related to this conversation, the ocean can can be. I know this is a common question, but what what can anyone listening here who who also felt that sense of deflation listening to that list um, do on a, on their level to to make a difference? Well, I think the thing is that already by you listening to what we're talking about is a really good step. So you should kind of give yourself a pat on the back because you're a human in the world that actually cares and is you know, trying to trying to help educate oneself on the ocean. So that's a big step. That is actually a really big step. So they're already doing it in a sense, which is great. But other little things, and I think we're moving towards this, is you don't have to be a scientist to make a change. It's just little things in the day. So refusing a plastic straw, using reusing plastic, uh, you know, the reusable bags at, at the grocery store, don't pour oil down the drain. Think about some of the plastics that you use. It's all very important. Don't release balloons. Oh, my gosh, you can just save a million, well, Mm. you can save a lot of turtles by not releasing balloons. Simple things like that. And even just having a little chat to maybe your older grandparent or your father or your mother that might be stuck in their way a little bit. I know my dad sometimes is. So it's all about having that communication as well. And so you're essentially already, you've got that step forward. So well done to you as as a listener. I'd say um, from my position that the average person is more aware of conservation projects and efforts on on earth, on land, than they are at sea. But actually, there are some great conservation achievements that can be found relating to the ocean. Uh, What are some of those positive environmental stories? Well, seeing as we've been speaking about humpback whales, the humpback whale recovery in Australian waters is a really good one. So essentially, we've gone from this population on the east and the west coast of Australia hunted to near extinction. So I'm only talking a couple of hundred. And then thankfully they they had protection. So they were now they were no longer hunted. And so that came in in the mid early 60s. And then this population, just because we've stopped killing them, has essentially rebounded huge numbers. So the East Coast population continues to grow each year at around eleven percent. There's over 35,000 individuals. They're doing extremely well, whereas on the flip side, there is other populations around the world where the moves there are now moves to increase their, their listing of vulnerability, which is very sobering. But we have good news stories like that to say this, look what was happens when we stop hurting an animal and we, we help them to then rebound. And it's a, it's a great story. Like, for example, 
I've when I watch Wales of Sydney, there are people who I've spoken to have said, you know what, when I was a boy, I never would see a whale off off Sydney. I could never see them. And now I come out here and they're everywhere. And that's just a great, like that's so great to hear that. And it's a positive story and it's a good one and something I'll have hold in my heart forever. And uh, I, I think there is, isn't there a, a white whale that, that can be seen like each year going to and f- to and from on its um, journey? Yes, that's right. Migaloo, the famous white hump. Migaloo. Yeah, he, he's one of, I think, a, I think there's more than one out there. But everyone's fascinated with this completely white humpback whale. And that's also a, if he's kind of like the rock star of the whale world because if no one cares about a whale, they, they seem to care about Migaloo, the white whale, for some reason. And he is extraordinary, be- beautiful. Seeing him underwater, I've seen him from land. And as he swims underwater, he just illuminates the ocean around him. I'd told a few of my friends that I was um, speaking to you or due to speak to you today. And, um, they, they had a couple of questions. One of them was they enjoy wakeboarding in the, um, in the harbour here in Sydney and they, and they wanted me to ask just how, just how safe is it to do that? Are there any sharks there that could, could nibble on them? That was the first question. <laughs> well, um, there are, in fact, sharks that live in the harbour, but some people will probably forget that and that's completely fine. Now, I must say there's the annual bull shark movement into Sydney Harbour waters over Christmas time or over the summer months. And so what they'll do is they'll come into Sydney Harbour from Queensland. They'll come all the way in, even up the Parramatta River. There's been some great research done by New South Wales DPI on this, uh, which is actually caught and uh, tagged and also put satellite trackers on them. And it shows their movements. And did you know that there are a number of them moving in and out of the waters over Christmas time? Even Australia Day where there's millions of people on the water and there's no interaction with sharks. So there are sharks in the harbour. At certain times of the year there might be bigger ones. There are also dolphins and there are also fur seals that live in the harbour. So, you know, the the good thing is is that you're coexisting with these animals and probably when you go for a wakeboard or a ski, it's something that you might think of. I know I think of it when I go water skiing as well it's a natural thing but that's also because it's a respectful thing because i know i'm in their environment so just be aware of it and i think that's part of it isn't it i think that is um uh part of that uh human interaction with sharks is that that understanding that actually just for that moment you are you are in their territory as well yeah and actually i will point out that these animals are not looking for a human every day so i I will point that out the the second question i had (laughs) was um in, in the LL Cool J classic movie, Deep Blue Sea, they created ge- genetically modified super sharks in an attempt to weaponize them for warfare. Just how scared should we be? Now, when, when they asked if I'd asked you, ask you this question, I thought to myself, no, I'm not going to ask that. But then I did think of, uh, I remember reading a story about a beluga whale that was allegedly um, used by Russia as a, as a spy whale. And I also read that, you know, the US Navy has a marine mammal project as well. Yes. So just just how silly was that question? No, not silly at all. It's, we, we, if you've ever seen a, a dolphin show, and I used to be a trainer as well, so these animals are incredibly intelligent, so are your dogs, so or your dog rather. What we can do, people often think that these animals, you know, oh, my God, they're so, so special. Okay, they have big brains. So dolphins we know have big brains. But the beluga whale in particular can learn just like you teach your dog or your cat 
by positive reinforcement. So you ask the you over over small attempts, you ask the animal to do something, and if they do it right, then you you teach them what it means to be right. So whether that be blow a whistle and then you provide them with a the food source, and the animal goes, oh, okay. In the case of the beluga whale, that animal was clearly a trained animal, and it actually had a harness on it which says "Property of Saint Petersburg." So what I think may have happened. Yeah, so there's no doubt in my mind that whale wasn't trained, so it was trained rather, and the animal must might have escaped a facility and was not, <laughs> was potentially people are saying it's a spy animal. Well, it only had a harness on it, so I don't know what else they put on it There were in terms of where it was working out where it was going to go, but let's just say no one claimed that, that beluga whale and now he's become a little bit of a, a familiar face up north. In fact, one of my friends is works quite closely with him. And so these animals are definitely capable of doing things that we we ask them to do. And so the marine mammal training in America is amazing. They can train fur seals or sea lions to essentially be weapon weapons where they can go and attack people. It's like a that's like a guard dog, like a you see at the airport, the canine squad. Those animals are trained to attack and they can do that. Also, John Wick, that recent recent movie with Keanu Reeves, that is, if your friends have ever seen that, that training is exceptional. And so the training that they would have done at those two German shepherds would have been used on similar similar properties of, of positive reinforcement would have been used for an animal that can, like the beluga whale, who's potentially a Russian spy. And it's it's really cool because it goes beyond, okay, if it was used for spy techniques, that's one thing. But the ability to train these animals in a positive way and to use them for a variety of things is so interesting. It's it's really, it's all about reinforcement in a positive way. If an animal doesn't want to do anything, they will not do something. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'd rather bump into that friendly beluga whale than I would those two Alsatian dogs from John Wick. <laughs> That's <for> right. Sure. <laughs> yeah, they had to do a lot of training, which was really cool with the, with the actors, I must point out. Apparently six, yeah. six months worth. So it's not a small feat to, to, to be able to do that. So in short, these marine mammals might have their personality traits and the intelligence to be trained as spies, but perhaps in some cases are just a little bit too friendly to be um, to, to James Bond. Well, that's right. Or at least when, when you have a dolphin that has a fixed smile, it would be looking yeah. like it's happy all the time. <laughs> I had one last question, um, which was, what is your most enchanting or inspiring experience of the ocean that should really give everybody a reason to want to protect it oh I'd have to say that happened last year and it was picture I was in the waters of Tonga and I was having a bit of I was doing a documentary over there and I was in the water there was this is in a controlled environment well I should say that the swimming we were controlling our behavior as swimmers because they have rules and regulations on swimming so I was right next to my the guide the Tongan guide and we're in the water. There was a mum and a mum escort, so a, so a male escorting a female, and there was a baby, and they were sleeping. The baby, because they have a small lung capacity, they have to come up and breathe more. So I hopped in the water, and I could see the mum and the escort hanging ver- uh, um, diagonally. Sorry, so just think of a bus just suspended in the air, although this is underwater. And then all of a sudden, mm. the little the little humpback whale baby came to the surface to take a breath. And the moment it came up, it saw that we were there and they're very inquisitive. And so I was keeping my distance. This animal saw me and I moved my arm. Just I just moved my arm just to see if it would do anything. And the animal 
targeted me, came right over to me. I'm talking a baby the size of your car. It swam mm. right over to me and it reached, it put its arm out and put it up against my body. Now, at this stage, I had absolutely, I was shocked and I could not do anything. <laughs> so my <laughs> only reaction, because the animal swam over to me, so this was this is the up to the animal's term. And the only thing I could do, I was shocked and I literally was moving back, but the animal actually uh, touched me, but it was the most amazing experience for have this animal eyeball look at me and just go, wow, I will never forget that moment of my life. And just to think that that little calf just being, would have been a couple of months old, then had the journey of going all the way down to Antarctica and then coming back every year. That little calf would then be capturing information about our ocean and would be so vulnerable to how us as humans play in the ocean and interact with it really is something that I think that we should all as humans think about and just remember that these animals are living beings and they've got their I know a, a whale's an easy thing to connect to but the things that they interact with at a small level such as the food they eat and the food that their food eats is all interconnected and we all need to play our role in protecting the environment in whatever capacity we can. Yeah, that I mean, that sounds like such an incredible moment. And when when I'm listening to it, I, I get that sense of both the power and the vulnerability. Yes, of of the ocean and 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 its creatures and our and our responsibility towards it as well. Absolutely, and that's why every time I enter into the ocean, I always I do have that sense of vulnerability, but also I have a sense of respect. That's why. I mean, I could speak to you for hours, but I'd just like to say thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak to me. I know you're, you're really busy and wishing you all the very best. Thank you so much. And thank you for having the opportunity to communicate some really important ocean messages. And I hope that uh, your listeners take something from this and go forth and spread the message of conserving the ocean. And have a new regard for whale snot. <laughs> That's right. Thank you very much, Vanessa. Thank you. You've been listening to MISC with me, James Hill, and guest, Dr. Vanessa Perotta.